Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams as we discuss the first two books of St. Augustine's The Confessions. This week we will be doing our releasing our first podcast, which we recorded this earlier this summer, so these will not be from the archives. These, this one will be brand new. We also went a slightly different direction in this podcast insofar as it's around two hours long. Uh, if this is something you have an opinion on, we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page um, at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. Like that page. Let us know what you think. We went for a very long one rather than breaking it up into multiple episodes. So let us know what you think. The first hour deals with the first book of the podcast, uh, of the book of the confessions. The second hour begins with a conversation about Augustine's education and then educate classical education in general and what that has meant to uh, Tom, Trevor, and Chad's um, understanding of education and the place of the classical Christian school. We then discuss famous pair incident about an hour and 45 minutes in. So we thank you for downloading this podcast. Um, and the Confessions, uh, we give a little bit of background in the book, but this was written... Um, about 10 years after Augustine converted to Christianity, and it is his prayer to God that explores how it was that he became a Christian and what forces were at play in his conversion to Christianity. So with that said, um, if you would please rate us and like us on iTunes. It really helps people find our podcast. Um, We thank you for listening, and we always appreciate your comments, as I said earlier, on our Facebook page. So thanks for listening. Yeah, let's do kind of like a little intro. Like, yeah. hey, gang, it's been a year and a half. <laughs> it has been a year and a half. Uh, that is exactly right. Uh, we think it's been a year and a half. I do remember recording la- uh, uh, like a year ago last fall. Um, it was actually about the time that I met my now wife. Um, and uh, she has been joking that she's the cause of the downfall of the podcast. Um, uh, I, actually, <laughs> I actually sat there and thought, Oh, Chad's got a girlfriend. That's preventing him from uh, doing any editing or anything. So I have thought that that was one of the principal contributors. Um, We know that I'm not the guy who's going to be on top of things. So if Chad's not on top of things... Um. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I don't know, Trevor. Are you much of an on top of things kind of guy? No. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm near them, never on top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we appreciate those who've been downloading, making comments, things like that. We're sorry we haven't got to them. It just you know got pushed to the side. So, um, I think Trevor's got some big news for for his transitions. Yes. Uh, I got my master's degree in philosophy from Oklahoma State University finally, and I got into the University of Nebraska and will be moving to Lincoln this fall to start my PhD program in philosophy. So, Yeah. And, Chad, you alluded to it, but you have big news too. I mean, you got, you know, your girl, that girlfriend of yours is now your wife. That's right. Yeah, and uh, you're still plugging away at uh... – Grad school. Yeah, so I'm at yeah, St. Louis University still. Uh, I probably have a year and a half to two years left, uh, basically just writing my dissertation. Um, and uh, yeah, um, so I'm, I'm plugging away at that. Um, uh, and Tom, what's new with you? Well, I'm neither married, nor <laughs> working on a thesis, nor working on a dissertation. Uh, nor have I any intention of doing any of those things in the immediate future. 
Um, the married thing eventually would be nice. Uh, I guess all those things would be nice. I just, you know, you get to a point where you're like, I don't know if that's ever going to happen in my life. So uh, no intention right now of going to grad school or anything. Mostly just teaching 12th graders, uh, trying to, trying to uh, you know, I guess give them an excitement and a love first for the Lord, but also for literature and history and those kinds of things, philosophy. Um, I don't know how well I'm succeeding in that, (laughs) Uh, which is actually something that uh, Augustine references frequently today. And today's reading is the the ability to pass on excitement Mm. and love of learning. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, for sure. So uh, as Tom just alluded to, we are just going to pick up, we just chose to go straight into confessions. Uh, we kind of left. So we're leaving the Cappadocians, leaving um, the Greek speaking East for a little while. And uh, a long while, probably. Yeah, for a long, for maybe for a long <laughs> while. We, you know, we did Tertullian and Cyprian. So we're moving to North Africa. So the next in the great line of North Africans is Augustine, right? So um, he uh, is educated in North Africa. And actually by the time that Augustine is learning, um, so his, um, um, his sort of predecessor intellectually um, is the um, metamorphosis of, um, oh, uh, now, now it's uh, just, uh, uh, um, oh, good night. What is his name? I don't even know what kind of thing you're looking for. Uh, Apuleius, the golden ass by Apuleius. Ah, oh, right. I could not come up with that. So I, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so I, yeah, so I started to say that Augustine, uh, in, in this North, in the North African culture, in the North African milieu, there was at least one other great non-Christian order who had an influence who Augustine references called Apuleius. And he wrote a book called um, Either Metamorphoses or Augustine refers to it actually as the golden donkey or the golden ass. Um, and it's, some people call it the first novel, uh, but a lot of people put it as a preparatory piece of literature for the confessions because um, uh, people are moving away from epic poetry as such. So we're reading the confessions. A lot of the great works of the ancient world were either historical uh, biographies of great uh, leaders um, or histories of war, Herodotus, Thucydides. Um, and then Ap- uh, Apuleius writes a, um, writes a novel um, called the, the Golden Ass or the Metamorphoses. And then Augustine takes, takes all these different things and turns inward, basically. So a lot of people would say that like one of Augustine's great contributions is this sort of psychological um, exploration this theological uh it's a prayer right the so we're reading book one he begins um the confessions with uh a prayer um but but basically largely it is an exploration of his own it's his own life but what's going on great you know first line is great are you O lord and surpassingly worthy of praise um and 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 that's that's kind of the broader literature that we're talking about. But it goes, it turns very, very, you know, very inward in a way that no other literature that we've read has, and really no other literature from the ancient world does. Uh, maybe Cicero a little bit in his letters, um, but never in a work that's meant to be um, whole like this. Yeah, and just to clarify, I know I think we've mentioned this in the past because I'm sure we've talked about Augustine before, but just so our listeners aren't confused. 
Augustine and Augustine are the same person. And we could probably right now just settle on one name. But honestly, I don't think it would be best for everybody because the fact is everybody like debates about this. Some people say Augustine. Some people say Augustine. I actually am not like wholeheartedly committed to one. I, you know, just have always said Augustine. So that's, you know, what I, what I say. So my medieval philosophy teacher said Augustine. So it's just stuck in my brain, but I have no opinion about it. Yeah. Yeah. And my (laughs) classical history professor said Augustine. So that's why it stuck with me because yeah. that's would have been the first first time I ever heard it as well. But and, and Tom, Tom, I'd like to oh one more say, thing real quick. Okay. I do think like we are right now embarking maybe since the Bible on the first piece of Christian literature that might be considered like part of the Western canon of literature, like in a broad sense, not just Christian, but Correct. universally, like Augustine is something people read, Christian or non-Christian. And I've already made the comment to these guys. I, when reading it, I go, oh, this is great. Like, the other stuff we've read, there's been some good stuff in it. I see what sets Augustine apart. I mean, his eloquence, his intelligence is, like, I mean, his philosophical maturity is just so far beyond, I think, anybody else we've read. You know how you know it's in the Western canon? Oh. It's when there's a Spark Notes page for it. Because <laughs> that means we're forcing students to read it. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, now, Chad, a... I cut you off there. You were about to say oh, something. Oh, I was just going to say, and Tom will like to point out that uh, before I had left for St. Louis, I was wont to say uh, Augustine. Um, and my uh, my doctoral advisor, Father McConey, always corrects me to say Augustine. He said, you're at a Catholic school now. Quit speaking like a Protestant. Um, (laughs) although uh yeah well we we could talk about what does it mean for st louis university to be a catholic school but (laughs) uh yeah i i don't don't know how popular this will get but (laughs) well i have to be honest i don't know you know what it really means for almost any christian university to be a Christian university anymore. I mean, I keep graduating students who keep going to these various Christian universities. And I mean, it's, it blows me away. Like, I'll give you an example. And I'm not really trying to be political here. So I hope you guys, you know, like, I don't want to meld into these waters, but I have a friend who went to, or I have an old student, a student who graduated last year who went to a Christian university in Washington. He took an intro to theology class and he said in the first week, they focused on pronouns and which pronouns are proper to use. And in the second week, they focused on um, uh, on gender and sexuality. Now, here's the thing. I love talking about those things, and I think there's a place to talk about those things. In an intro to theology class at a Christian university, right. ought those be your principal topics? And the answer is no. I mean, that's that's contemporary progressive you know, ideology and worldview. That's yeah. not something that you would think of as being a, and even if you're a progressive Christian and it's a progressive Christian university, that just shouldn't be your principal topic in a theology class. <laughs> That'd be like yeah. doing math and saying, hey, <laughs> like, hey, we're doing calculus. Week one, we're going to talk about pronouns. Like, I mean, aside from maybe the practicality of it, of, hey, what are you going to address your fellow students as? Maybe mm-hmm. that. But getting into that as a topic. Maybe it was 
the God using E for God. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, no, 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 it wasn't. It wasn't? No, it was about identity, like it's basically people. social identity, identity politics. Things wow. Like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, so we've, we've turned theology into a... I mean, we've turned theology into what Feuerbach always criticized theology for being a study of man. Hmm. Um, and I mean, this it's was a fair criticism. Not that I'm a big Feuerbach fan, but it's a fair criticism. Yeah. I mean, he wrote uh, he wrote a book called The Essence of Christianity in the 19th century. Um, and, you know, some 20th century German theologians, most notably Karl Barth, of whom I am a fanboy. Me too. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, he said in a way Feuerbach got it right. Um, and that is a lot of people who are doing theology are just looking at man and then sort of extending their wishes out, um, and calling it God. Um, and, uh, and Bart said that the one great challenge to Feuerbach was the idea of revelation. Jesus, you know, so that is Jesus Christ, the word of God. Um, is the, like, that's one way that we can know that this is not just human wish fulfillment, um, is yeah. if it, if it is, uh, revelatory, um, you know, we could, I got, well, you know, we always say God willing, we'll get to the 20th century. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, I'll just, yeah, I'll well, just go ahead and say We that literally that. quit for a year and a half and <laughs> I didn't know if this was ever going to come back. So, so the, the thought of us getting to the 20th century is... Yeah. To be honest, everybody, this is just kind of a little thing I've been thinking. You know, we've actually skipped some theologians that we probably should throw in, and I hope we get to them. Like, we definitely need to discuss Ambrose, who, as we go through confessions, it'll become clear that, one, Ambrose is a predecessor to Augustine. Two, Ambrose is integral in Augustine's conversion. But I was definitely at a point where I needed to read Augustine if I was going to move forward, because I just... I wanted to. I just want to get into Augustine. I want to discuss Augustine, and we'll hopefully get to Ambrose and some of those other guys after after we you know get through at least some of Augustine. Maybe we can read Confessions, take a hiatus, and do some Ambrose, and then come back to more Augustine or or whatever. Hey, we should let everybody know too. We are trying to get these up for you guys, but I think we're going to be trying not to be too ambitious. I think we're going to try to be a little slower, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe fewer episodes. Like we're going to try to be consistent, get something out there every month for you guys. Um, but we just all have busy lives. And so we'll do the best we can, but hopefully so that we don't get overwhelmed and and quit again for a year and a half. Uh, we're going to try to be slower in terms of getting product out. And we're going to try to bite off smaller chunks of reading. Um, Correct. Which I think is the only way we're going to be able to keep doing this. So. Yeah, but hopefully that also means the quality of the content can go up a little, and it'll at least come out regularly. Yeah, yeah, which exactly. Is, yeah, exactly. Yeah, keep in mind we have two people working on their PhDs here going on, and they're both married and have kids. Now I'm not talking about myself. I don't know why it is I can't find time to do it because I'm neither married nor working on my PhD, but I find myself very, very busy. Hey. You take care of some kids during the day. That's true. I do. I do. I like have my kids. They're my they're my eighteen year olds that I take care of every day, all day, for the most part. Yeah. So, what's well, the first thing you want to jump in on? Um. Well, I was going to try to give um uh sort of uh give the mic for a minute to Trevor. Although now I'm just thinking I want to go back and do one other thing before I do that, which is I was going to turn to. 
I mean, as with uh, as as we sort of generally talked about, these confessions are very different than anything we've read. Um, they are so sometimes it's called the first autobiography. I I think you know again if we have a twentieth or twenty first century lens of autobiography and we read this, we'll be confused um, because his thing begins with a prayer. Um, and I think I wanted to look at the prayer element first, and then I wanted to move to language. Um, and that was where I was going to let Trevor have some say. Um, because again, just to talk about the, um, the importance of Augustine for previous or for, for, um, uh, his, those who follow after him, they look at a lot of different things that he says. And one of them is how he explains language in confessions. Um, Wittgenstein takes him to task in his philosophical investigations. Um, but, um, but anyway, so even sort of non, non Christian, non theological people find this, um, worth uh, considering. But I want to draw attention to the most famous passage of the Confessions, likely, um, or if not one of the most famous, and uh, one that I have a tattoo prepared for when I finish my dissertation. Um, <laughs> I, um, and that, by the way, Chad is an Augustine junkie as well. He just mentioned Bart, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm not wrong in that, right, Chad? Oh no, my first love is Augustine. Um, yeah, um, I, or Jesus. Sorry, uh, but yeah. <laughs> 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 no, I, I, I mean, I, I kid, but I mean, sort of. Uh, yeah, I like, I love reading. I love reading Augustine. One thing, I'm, I'm writing a dissertation on Augustine's uh, homilies, his sermons, um, and if there's one way that I can categorize his sermons. Um, it is his relentless desire to see people turned away from him and to uh, the word of God, to Jesus Christ, to, um, to, a, to the Christ who lives within, uh, within Christians. That is his goal. Um, and I think that's even true of these. I think that's what makes these um, so accessible, right? So they begin as prayers. Great are you, Lord, and surpassingly worthy of praise. It's actually, in a way, you could say this is not a book about Augustine. This is a book about God. Um, and because that's where he always turns his attention to. He can't understand himself without first turning to God. And so he ends his first paragraph with this famous passage, um, So, um, and you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And I always like to point out when I'm teaching the Latin, it is not actually until they simply rest quiescat, it's re quiescat. So he even imagines a going away and a returning in a sense. We begin with God, we leave and we return. Um, and, and there is always this almost circular motion. Like the word confession means both to confess your sins, but also to praise. And it's in, it's in a continual, hopefully non-vicious circle um, of looking at God, looking at how we are less, uh, praising him for that he is more, um, and, and re-resting in him. I feel like we're back now because you just read Latin. Yeah. I feel like it's official. Yeah. Chad read Latin. It's like the year and a half is no longer even there. <laughs> so I have a question right off the bat based yeah. on the kind of what you just said in this passage. Yeah. There's this interesting idea where he goes on also about God being everywhere. You yeah. can't imagine where God isn't in, in, in so many ways. And yet there's this leaving of God. And yet there's this needing to pray for God to be in you. And basically the question is, 
what's up with that sort of strange tension? You know, what does he mean by each? I, I'm literally asking, like, what's the, what do you take him to mean? Uh, I mean, one way to read what I just read um, and sort of the early Augustine actually would, I mean, okay, well, this is slightly, I'm uh, actually, maybe this is a little bit different, but some people read this as a sort of a platonic, the souls begin with God and leave God and return to God. Um, some people will say that he is just giving the platonic doctrine of the soul here. Um, that is, he, I mean, he gives something similar in De Magistro on the teacher um, where he basically says, it's not that you learn, it's that you relearn. Um, uh, because we all, we all know things, um, when we are present with God, um, and then we need to, but we relearn them because we go through, I mean, I don't think he used, I don't think he references the cave precisely, um, but that is in the background. He has read. And that's, yeah, I mean, like that is platonic doctrine, the doctrine of recollection. Like Plato believed that teaching was leading people to recall, um, because of course, on his view, the soul is eternal, not just eternal moving forward, but eternal forward and backward. It has always existed and always will. So it's always experienced the forms. And then when it ends, that is the, the realm where the ideal idealized form of all things are. And then when, when the soul inhabits a body, it forgets. And so the teacher has the job of making them recollect. However, Christians don't believe in, of course, a... An eternal soul in that sense. Christians believe in an eternal soul moving forward. And then an not, everlasting soul, maybe not an yeah, eternal soul. An everlasting soul, not an eternal soul. So I wonder what he thinks or how he gets that idea of recollection if he really believes it. Um, I wonder how he – I mean, I guess you could take kind of like a modified rationalist view that we're just born with innate ideas. There are just things in us yeah. that we have that God put in there, so to speak. Yeah, so I mean, he uh, over the in the history of uh, August, uh, Augustine. Oh, well, in the in the life of Augustine, he seems to go back and forth uh, on this. He had so um, one of the things that makes Augustine that one of the most fascinating people to study is towards the end of his life, almost before he died, he wrote uh, the Retractationes. He he wrote um, the things that I got wrong, <laughs> um, oh. and, and and so it's sort of a fascinating way uh he goes he tries to go through literally every book he ever wrote and say i'm sorry i got that wrong we'll get to a place in book two where he apologizes uh in the confessions for being too flowery with his language and basically being too proud um because he's he feels like he's showing off um and so he's aware of himself as and this is this gets into some of my dissertation um augustine is aware of how he presents himself and how um how his language can be both a distraction from its purpose, which he feels like is ultimately to point people towards God, um, and but can also be used to point people towards us. So the great um, sin for Augustine of humanity is pride. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, so, but he goes back and forth on the soul, right? So at one point early on, all that's a long way to say, early on, he thinks that there is a preexistent soul. He's a Platonist. Um, I mean, he's just a, he's just a, uh, a, a run-of-the-mill Neoplatonist um, mm-hmm. before he converts. And so he just thinks that there's a pre-existent eternal soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and he writes letters to Jerome. He writes some stuff on the soul um, where he kind of says, I know that we can't believe in an eternal soul like that. Um, but it, it also creates problems for him for the do- doctrine of original sin. But I think he would say like, 
humanity in some sense knew um, in Adam everything and they have to relearn it. Um, so in the same way that we lose, so in the same sense that all soul shares in the sin of, of Adam, um, we also sin in the incapacity or sort of the, the, the sort of brokenness of our, even our, our rationality to some degree, or the things that we know, maybe not the rationality as such. So we could talk about the noetic effects of sin. Uh, I, maybe not, I don't know that he thinks all of our mechanisms are broke in the same way that the reformers will, uh, but he thinks that there's some incompleteness in our knowledge, um, and we inherit that as sin. Um, so that has to be, that's the recollection part. It's not that, I think in his mature thought, he doesn't want to say, we knew it as an individual soul present to God. Mm-hmm. And a noetic, uh, the noetic effects of sin are how sin makes us incapable of knowing everything, correct? Yeah. 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 That has to do. So there, I think there'd be a question there, like, especially if, I mean, all of us have some background in analytic philosophy. Um, so I think they would want us to make a distinction here probably between the mechanisms by which we know um, and whether or not we know all things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there could be the noetic effects of sense typically refers to our actual capacity to reason and whether or not that is altogether broken, which I, a Luther definitely wants to say. Well, yeah. and connected to like theoretic type rationality where you're talking about just knowing truths, connected to this is obviously practical rationality as well, in which case there is a pretty clear doctrine here that seems to have inspired as well like people like Thomas Aquinas, which is something like when your will gets maligned in some way, it maligns your intellect in some way, such that you keep making worse and worse decisions. Uh, you know, Aquinas had like a very complex picture of this. Your will's presenting things to your intellect as good and it gets in a habit and stuff. But yeah, this, you can see a thread and it does definitely like, this is the first time at least I've read um, on the podcast that is for the podcast, this sort of clear tradition of the effect on your practical rationality, how you decide your practices. Yeah, I think that's a good point, although it sounds a little too Kantian, so I'm skeptical. No, I'm just <laughs> 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 Practical rationality, what are you talking about? I know. <laughs> well, we've inherited his terms. What can we do? Yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a good way to put it. And, um, you know, we can also say that, um, we, you know, if we look in the sort of traditions of um, philosophical thought, um, there's, you know, uh, Plato basic, I mean, as far as I read Plato, uh, what is it, the, the credo, um, some of his uh, work on epistemology or seems to be like basically with enough education, you can repair the soul um, so that uh, it, it operates correctly. Um, and in some ways, Augustine is trying to say it's not simply a, a failure of knowledge to do wrong. Um, it's a failure of will. Um, and, and this gets you might want to say this gets exaggerated. Um, in Augustine or in the reformers. Uh, but, but at the very least, um, Augustine thinks that you can have all the right information, all the right um, uh, theories, knowledge, and cap- capabilities, but you might have a failure of will. Um, and that, fail- that failure of a will uh, will cause you to do sin. So Augustine's reading Romans 7, Romans 6, these sorts of things. So correct me if I'm wrong, because this is an interesting distinction. Plato thought that if you had wisdom, you could have all the other virtues. Is that correct? Well, it's so my understanding, and Chad, you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that Plato at times contradicts himself on this front. Oh, okay. right. Like, like I do. I, I can't remember which di- uh, which of Plato's dialogues it is, but he definitely in one of them 
espouses the doctrine, well, that doctrine that you're describing, yeah. that basically if you have knowledge, then you are going to not sin. So, for instance, like he basically says, look, sin is harmful to you. That's like almost by definition, yeah. whatever is sinful is harmful to you. So you're not going to, you'd only be an idiot to do something that would harm yourself. So then therefore, every time you sin, it must be because of a lack of wisdom or knowledge. Yeah. Um, however, in other spots, he seems to contradict that a little bit. He doesn't, I, I've never read him to actually, um, in like, as Aristotle did, talk, uh, talk about a corrupt will. But at the yeah. same time, um, what he's essentially saying there is kind of a form of Epicureanism. And Plato was not an Epicurean, or Epicurean, right? So I don't know. I mean, Chad, could you elaborate on that at all? Uh, yeah, I would say uh, for for one, um, I purposely skipped Aristotle because his is a very complicated picture um, of the, <laughs> the 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 you know formal, final, efficient, and what's the other co- um, cause? Um, uh, formal, final, final, efficient, efficient formal, final, and efficient. Material. material, material. So he's going to develop a much much more complex way. But no one, I would say that no one emphasizes the will to the degree that Augustine does. So that's why I say you might want to say it's exaggerated. Um, so there's definitely sort of a progression um, from Plato to Aristotle. And by the time, by the, so we don't, okay, we could also talk about this. So uh, Augustine's um, knowledge of Greek is incomplete, um, as he points out in book one of the Confessions, Um I will uh, I will go to the mat and say that his Greek is actually quite good by the end of his life. Um, and this is something of a contention among uh, Augustinian scholars. How much did he know Greek? By, by late in life, he's reading and correcting translations of Hippocrates and the New Testament. He knows Greek fine. Um, but, uh, but, but, he, but, but that's really late. Um, and when he's a Platonist, he probably doesn't know Greek that well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's reading the Libri Platonici he talks about in book three, uh, that is the books of the Platonists, and nobody knows precisely what those are, um, but they're probably a um, Latin translation of um, uh, of, of the Platonists, of, of Plato um, and um, uh, maybe Plotinus. Um, and by the time we get to whatever we're calling Neoplatonism, there is also some confusion of terms here. But um, by the by the time, you know, all this stuff gets handed down to Augustine, a lot of it feels like a mass of knowledge where you have little bits of Aristotelianism, little bits of Epicureanism. They still know that they're distinct schools, but philosophy is just philosophy um, mm-hmm. in the in the um, and it's because of Cicero in, in the in the Latin West. So Cicero sort of distills them all down and puts them all into Latin first. Um, and well, sort of- it's kind of a more modern thing to try to, de- or to, try to compartmentalize everything, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like uh, nowadays you don't have people who are scientists and philosophers, even though if you're a legitimate scientist, you should be completely motivated and informed by philosophy. Like Isaac Newton, we think of now as a scientist, he would not have called himself a scientist. He was a philosopher, and to him, studying the book of Daniel and studying the uh, studying the the movement of the heavenly bodies, that was all the same thing, right? I mean, and it seems to me that when I study classic literature, medieval literature, even Renaissance literature, people do not compartmentalize like we do. Right. Like, you would never just study math to study math. You are a philosopher. You might 
find that part of philosophy more interesting. Um, and you might be, as a philosopher, swayed more by Aristotle than Plato. You might, but it wasn't necessarily like you were comfortable taking whatever knowledge you can get from anybody. That's Nowadays, right. we're so specific in everything. So it's like it's like even being a scientist. There's nobody who's just a scientist, right? You're a you're a physicist, but you're not just a physicist. You're a theoretical versus a practical physicist, right? I mean, it's like so. You know, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. I, yeah, I think this is all good. I, let, I think we should start and talk about um, his theory of language um, and how uh, the sort of natural language um, and what, what he – so, so what Augustine does is he starts his prayer, and then he says – and then he wants to know how does he pray to God, and he says, you know, does he have to know God first? Does he not? Um, uh, some philosophers uh, and readers have called these aporia. Um, these are these sort of conundrums that he sets up for himself. Um, and he says, okay, well, before I can even call on God, I have to know language. Well, how did I learn language? And so then he starts, but he doesn't, you know, again, if this were an autobiography, he doesn't say I was born in Maduros in uh, North Africa in 355. Uh, but he says um, in part eight uh, of book one, uh, well, uh, there are different numbering systems. So six, one, six, eight, or one, eight. Um, he says, uh, he talks about how he learned to speak. And he says, I do not remember all this with respect to myself. Gradually, I became aware of where I was and wanted to make my desires known to those who would fulfill them. Um, I was not able to do this because my desires were internal, whereas those adults were external to me. So I began to wriggle my limbs and show off my crying as signs to represent my wishes, meager as they were. These were the sort of signs that I could do. Um, and so he just... He starts to talk about these internal signs, and then later he says he started to point to objects and learn the names of the objects. So he has internal desires. Um, he hears people talking, and he points to things, and he says, that's a table, or that's milk, and then he'll say milk, and he says, that's how we acquire language. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and – oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and Wittgenstein, in the very beginning of the philosophical uh, investigation, says, man, this is how we thought language was, and Augustine's really smart, but he's wrong. <laughs> that's, not, <laughs> that's not what language is. Yeah. Um, now, I, yeah. I find it interesting that when you look at this, your, first, your mind immediately goes to Augustine's philosophy of language. Um, and I, I imagine that's colored by your reading of Wittgenstein, which I've actually been planning on getting to at some point, because I feel like it's a gross, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Absence hole, in my hole, in, your, hole yeah. in my education. I probably have read an essay or two of his in college, but um, not any of the main works, not any of his main works. Um, but when, so just, you know, I, I don't really want to change the topic at all. I just want to say that when I read this section, which I do think is fascinating because you know, as a if somebody's writing an autobiography, they may start like what you said by naming the town they grew up in and you know their parents and so forth. But then they'll probably go to their earliest memories. Augustine does not go to his earliest memories. He goes to prior to his earliest memories. That's right. right. Things he doesn't recall. And from what I can tell, it seems to me that his project is to show that he's a sinner at every point, yeah. right? Like that, that when he's describing, so, um, I mean, so basically when he's describing his formation and development as a baby, he talks about his selfishness 
in wanting to nurse, right? That's he right. talks about how he would cry when he doesn't get his way. Right. And he's saying that this is sinful baby stuff. His point being, we are sinners to the core from the second we come out of the womb, right? Now, at the same time, I, that's not to say that I don't think he's considering um, education, because I think he is. He's talking about how did I learn to become, but here's the way I looked at it. How did I learn to become a worse sinner? And how is it that as I grow up, my sins become increasingly dastardly and bad? You know, like like when I'm a baby, we all look at sinful behavior of a baby. And we're going, oh, he's being selfish because he's crying for his mother's milk. Or he's being selfish because he's demanding attention. You know, all these things. But we let it pass because he's a baby, right? But if, if an adult were to do that, then we would say, well, that's... Right. Which, yeah, I, again, not to change the subject, but, <laughs> I, but this did strike me. I was like, I I get what you're saying, Augustine, but like, and, and I know he talks about the age of reason and still a sin, but it, I still was like, I still feel weirdly uncomfortable calling babies selfish. Like, I do it as a joke sometimes when yeah. I talk about babies, but it's like, no, they're trying, like, it's helpless. That's why we use the word helpless. The whole point is just you got to do everything right now for this yeah. thing. And yeah. it's it's something we had to have developed for our survival. And it's like, so I don't know. Anyway, I, I felt weird when he kept talking about I was a selfish even when I was a baby, basically. I'm like, yeah. no. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think I disagree with him, too. And yeah. I, I think what he's doing, you know, and again, to be honest, Chad, you might have to chime in on this. I don't know at what point in his life he wrote this book. Like, I don't know, like, is this... 391-ish. So he converts in 386. He spends a couple years in... Uh, oh, uh, he re- yeah, so it's... Um, it's I think it's 390 or 391. Uh, five years, at, four or five years after his conversion, just as he's taking up his pastorate uh, in North Africa when he returns home from Italy. Gotcha. So this is before he meets Pelagius and... and oh, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So just so everybody at home knows, Pelagius is going to become one of the guys who kind of defines Augustine. He'll definitely come up later on in the podcast. Um, but Pelagius is essentially taking kind of a radical belief in free will and is rejecting the notion of inherited sin. Um, he, he basically is saying that everybody morally is a clean slate yeah. And makes their own choices uh, that we don't necessarily have. We might have a propensity to sin, but we don't have a compulsion to sin. And therefore, whenever somebody is like guilty of something, they are always blameworthy. Augustine is going to radically denounce that. But what's going to happen is, in the course of the evolution of Augustine's theology, we're going to see that he changes from, I think, kind of a fairly I, I, having a more. What's that? I got, it's three ninety seven, not three ninety one. He writes in 397, okay. but still before the Donatists. Yeah, not Donatists, before Pelagian. Well, both of them, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely before the, yeah, before the Donatists too. But, but uh, So oh. he's been a Christian at this point then for... Ten years. What was it? Ten, Ten years? years? Okay. No, 15. You said he converted in 381, didn't you? Uh, no, uh, sorry. This is... Uh, he converted in 386, or yeah, 386 typically. Oh, okay. Um, and... Yeah, then he wrote this in 397. Gotcha. Okay. Because I got the feeling when I was first reading this that, like, and I, because I didn't know when he wrote this either, I was like, 
he seems like he's like a new excited Christian who's, but he's got to that point where he's, you're really concerned about your sin. I feel uh, like every denomination has this. It's like, but that point in your early yeah. Christianity where you're like very concerned about your sin in this way. And oh, you're thinking sure. about it for a lot. Sure. And I, I, that was interesting to hear well, anyway. Actually, you know, cause proverbially, there's that thing people call Catholic guilt, right? You yeah. Know? And when I'm reading this, I was thinking Catholic guilt. And I like I certainly don't want to call out Catholics as feeling yeah. particularly guilty about their sin, because I, I, I think every Christian denomination that takes doctrines of sin seriously yeah. wrestles with this, Catholic or not. So I don't yeah. think it's peculiar, but there is this cultural thing where we think of people growing up Catholic and developing these strong senses of guilt. And you see it with Augustine. Like, he is... a <laughs> Uh, we're going to get to it. I'm, I, I'm jumping the gun. I'm, I'm jumping the gun a bit. But in book two, he's going to talk about kind of his his moral failing as an adolescent, and he's going to he's going to focus in <clears throat> on a pear that he steals. Right, the infamous pear. The infamous pear. And I just remember talking to a friend of mine once, and I'm like, "So, have you read the Confessions?" And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, I read the Confessions." And I go, "What you, you know, what do you get from it?" And he goes, "That dude." really felt bad about that pair. <laughs> like he really, well, I mean, we'll read it here in a bit, but I mean, he's going to go to town on just how um, sinful and how dark. And like, he was motivated not because he wanted to eat a pair, yeah. but because he wanted to rebel against God's statutes. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's what he's doing with every single action and behavior that he covers. And I like, I, I do believe that we have a sin nature I do believe we have a propensity to sin. I do not believe in the inherent goodness of mankind. I believe that mankind is fallen. However, I don't believe that our every like our every inclination is bad. And I don't believe that our every desire is bad. Um, and so sometimes I'm like, you know, Augustine, some of these I think you're taking a bit too far. Well, especially when you talk about your childhood you just as you were talking about how he's sort of reconstructing the story about how he even learns words, you got to just, you're doing so much reconstruction or you're thinking about your childhood. And yeah, it's you're, you might be attributing yourself motives that you couldn't have even possibly had yeah. all sorts of things that anyway. Uh, fair enough. I'll point, I'll point to a couple things where I'll, I'll try to stand up for Augustine for a second, but I, I mean, I take <laughs> your point to some degree, but uh, in one seven eleven he says, Mothers and wet nurses claim to avert this behavior by their own particular charms. This behavior being um, envy um, and trying to keep other people from uh, the breast. Surely one cannot call it innocence when a baby prevents his sibling who is completely dependent for care and saves lives only because of that one source of sustenance from having a share in the plentiful abundant flow of milk. Um, but these things are tolerated kindly, not because they're of little of, uh, or no importance, because they will die away as the child goes older. Um, you can agree that this is permissible, uh, although people find such behaviors completely unacceptable from a fair-minded point of view when it is encountered in someone older. So that's the very end of 3711. Um, and then just shortly thereafter, he starts quoting Psalm 51. You c- I was conceived in wickedness, and in my sin, my mother nourished me in the womb. Um so I think he's trying to tell a story where one, um, I think he's trying. Well, I think he's trying to tell a story where he says I can make sense of things that people do throughout their life, even from the beginning. 
Um, and there is a tendency of people to take more than they need, and they should be restrained from it. Um, mm. And so I think he's just trying to say, look, this happens all the way at the beginning. Um, so he thinks he thinks that this is evident in the world, and he also thinks that it's evident in Scripture. So he's you know he's reading Psalm fifty one, Psalm one thirty nine, some of these sorts of things. Um, if um, so, when I I first read the Confessions when I was seventeen um, in high school, uh, and I had just taken Latin and, um, I don't remember even where I got it. Someone had recommended it to me and I loved it. But my first thought was, holy cow, this guy knows some scripture. I was like, cause even when he's not quoting scripture, he's alluding to scripture. And it's like one or two words of phrases as a Baptist guy growing up, I, you know, I read the Bible, I'd memorized lots of passages I could pick up resonances and then there would be footnotes and I'd see, I don't even see all the resonances. And I think I know scripture. Um, yeah. How well does this guy know scripture? Um, so he's reading the world through scripture and down to his very language. Um, so one of the things that I intend to do in my work is to show where his, the, the very words that he chooses. So he doesn't use the Latin word avis for bird. He uses volatilla. Um, which is what Genesis 1 says. There were flying things and there were crawling things. Um, and in Augustine's language, he, he won't even use the standard Latin word for bird anymore. Um, and he just says that my, my language is so infused. And he also had a, like a weird preoccupation with Genesis. He wrote, well, the end of uh, even Confessions has, a, uh, has an explanation of Genesis. Um, then he wrote three other treatises on Genesis itself. Um, so he loves Genesis. Uh, but regardless, this is who this guy is. He's reading the world through the, uh, through, through the Psalms, through Genesis, through the Bible. And he's trying to make sense of things that he sees in the world, which is sin. And so I think, yes, it may be a little hard on children. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, he also thinks this is not something that he sees in the philosophers. This is something you, uh, the philosophers don't take into account in the correct way. Uh, the degree to which we need correction. Yeah. Hmm. Well, and to be fair, I mean, <clears throat> I think when I asked how long, it, like whether or not he had encountered Pelagius, I, when I think of his doctrines of sin and depravity, uh, I, I really think of it as a, as really ari- arising during that period of his life. Um, that's why I was kind of curious here. Mm. When I read what he's describing, it does seem like he maybe focuses a little bit too much on it. And what I was describing is guilt, like that Catholic guilt kind of rising up, so to speak. But at the same time, I think what how you just tempered what I said is important because when you read this, you don't get the sense that he's this insane pessimist who's really trying to condemn people. He's, he's, not, he's not trying to say, hey, everybody, babies are horrible. Right. At all. Like you don't get that. He is. It does seem he's like he's much more matter of fact. Like he's just trying to say, look, this selfishness, it's always there from the time we're babies. And I think that is true. I think that's why I was saying I do think that our inherent tendency is to sinfulness, that there is a sin nature that is passed on by our forefathers, um, that it does come from rebellion in Adam um, and I do think that that sin nature is supposed to be dealt with in Jesus. So I believe those things, and I agree. And I, I think really the way he writes could be sufficient 
Like that would be sufficient for what he says. It's just almost a little funny sometimes the things he fixates on. That's all. And that if you were to like, if you were to feel really awful about it, it would seem a little weird. Like, you know, like the, the selfishness thing in babies, I do think there's a selfishness, but I also agree with Trevor that it's appropriate given the circumstances. And, and, and if he stole the pair, I think that is wrong. You shouldn't steal a pair. I don't know that I'd be thinking about it 30 years later and writing about my concupiscence, yeah. which is a term he uses to describe his, his – I don't know what Latin term he used there. Concupiscentia. But, it's just a direct Latin transliteration. Yeah. So – well, yeah. okay. Well, we can talk about failure, uh, appropriate desire, and failed desire because this is one of my favorite things uh, <laughs> in, in Augustine. Oh, totally. No, what he says on that is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead, Brad. What are you thinking? Well, okay. So I wanted to. Um, okay. Well, okay. Let's let's flip into his education because I want to say some things about. Um, okay, so he's really hard on kids. Um, and uh, in, it seems to be in this these passages. But when he switches to talk about um, uh, when he uh, let's see, so when he seems to talk about like how he hated um, the the ways that he was raised, uh, or not the ways that he excuse me. Well, he does hate some of that. But when he seems to talk about how hard he is on children at the um, uh, you know at the breast, trying to keep their siblings from the milk. He also talks about education a lot, which is fascinating. And he says, um, he's, uh, so uh, book one, 12, 19, um, he says, uh, he's talking about it being at school. And he said, but they never paid any attention to the use I made of what they forced me to learn, except for the purpose of satisfying insatiable desires for prosperity, poverty, and ignoble glory. Um, and, but then he goes on, he loathed loving Greek, but he loved Latin. So 1320, he goes down. Um, instead I was completely in love with Latin, not the base basics, which my primary teachers covered, but the literature, which the teachers known as grammarians taught me, um, at the elementary le- level, learning to read and write and do arithmetic. I found this language, um, uh, could be tiresome and onerous as Greek. Um, but, uh, but he loves, he loves, uh, he loves Didus. He loves a Neo, um, and he loves learning and he talks about loving to learn because he was curious, uh, a little bit later um he skips a little bit back but um oh he says by paying attention surrounded by my nurse's encouragement this is 1423 um uh surrounded by my nurse's encouragement and the amusement of those who smiled at me and the pleasures of those who played with me in a world i learned without any pressure from looming punishment i learned when my heart encouraged me to generate its own Desires, cum me urgeret cur meum ad parienda concepta sua. And, um, you know, so he says that my heart literally, you know, um, urged me, my heart pushed me, impelled me forward. So he thinks that we do sinful things, but he thinks that we do good things. And there is, there is, there are bad desires and there are good desires, but we are desirers. Yes. Um, And we are all desires and desire is not bad. Um, and children are not bad because they desire the milk. It's when their desires get out of line and they don't know it that it, they become bad. And so when he's learning, when he goes to school, he thinks, my teachers get it all wrong. They beat me 
and they do they teach me Latin in a stupid way by making me memorize declensions because no one has thought any better in the last 150 years about how to teach Latin. Um, and so I learned the same way. I was pounded in paradigms, um, and it's the worst way to teach a language. Um, and he says yeah. so. Which um, you and I have taught language. Yeah. And we know, like I've taught Greek, I've taught Latin, you've taught Greek, you've taught Latin. And it is impossible because, and really what he's describing there just reflects, I think, human nature. He lo- he says he loves Latin. And then he says, not the grammar. I hate the grammar. I love the literature. And it's the same thing. The kids we teach, they don't like the grammar of English. They do tend to like the, the literature of English. They hate the grammar of Greek and Latin because, and they don't learn it, right? Like you give them the forms. They, they do what they need to for the test. They don't learn it because they don't care. And, of course, I think kind of this whole proverbial classical instruction kid gets knuckles wrapped because he's not learning his forms. I mean, he's hitting right on it. I mean, he says right here in book uh, in 123, he says, this experience sufficiently illuminates the truth that free curiosity has greater power to stimulate learning than rigorous coercion. So that might be what you just read. We're, we have different translations. No, so that's, a part, that's just down from there because we can also okay. talk about – I have a paper on curiosity and studiousness, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, and I think that's interesting because yeah. it's like I teach at a school where we often say, look, at our school our kids love to learn. And the reality is I see kids get excited. But most often kids don't <laughs> because human nature wants to go outside. Well, now it's – it wants to be on video games and your phone and all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but in any case, what I really wanted to get at is actually, and sorry, Trevor, I'm sure you want to jump in, but back to book 21 mm. or 121. And I think this is getting to what you were just saying, Chad, that he's describing education for a number of reasons, his education, I think for a number of pretty, uh, pretty good reasons. One of them is the parents, his parents, adults, have a dream for him. They have a desire for him to be a certain kind of person. And he thinks that their desire is actually misguided and wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And he learns things that are probably, maybe not bad, but they're not what's best and most important. And in 121, kind of the end, right before 22, he says, I abandoned you. Oh, sorry. Let me give a little more context. He's talking about his love for Aeneas and uh, the book, uh, the book, uh, the Aeneid. And the story of Aeneas and Dido, which for those of you guys who are unfamiliar, Dido was the queen of Carthage. They had a romance. They had basically a tryst. And the gods eventually call Aeneas to abandon her to go to Italy, where he's supposed to found his future kingdom. Dido eventually kills herself. It's a very, like, it's, I mean, it's a Romeo and Juliet type of story. And it had a tremendous impact in in its day. Um, And he loved it. But, of course... He's saying here that he knows now that that story teaches vice. It teaches vice because it teaches people, A, to prioritize romance over all other things, which I I love reading that because that's our culture. Our culture thinks romantic love is the definitive thing, period, and that that has to be prioritized over everything. And I go, oh, yeah, everything's the same. Nothing changes. If there's one thing I got out of reading this, it's like, oh, yeah. We're all the same, right? Nothing's changed. He says it causes us to to prioritize romantic love over all else. It causes us also to prioritize political duty over other things. And it causes us to sit there and say, oh, Dido killing herself was a very romantic, beautiful thing. So to that, at the end of 121, he says, 
as he's speaking in this prayer-like way to God, he says, I abandon you to pursue the lowest things of your creation. I was dust going to dust. Had I been forbidden to read this story, I would have been sad that I could not read what made me sad. Right? So in other words, he's like, I read this book, it made me sad, but if I wasn't allowed to read it, I'd be upset that I couldn't read something that would make me sad. So where all this goes to is this, that he is talking about the fact that God has created pleasure for us. Pleasures are good. But what happens is through excess or want, we choose the wrong, we basically, something that could be good or overdo it, or we underdo it. We miss the mark, so to speak. And that is what ends up leading to unhappiness. It's what leads to sadness that, that we choose to love a thing more than God. And if we, if we have kind of like rightly ordered affections, God first, and then his created order in proper sequence, then that will lead to true happiness. And, and frankly, I think that's true. And I, I'm with that. Well, yeah, there's a way in which, like, the will, you know, Aquinas thought the will was like an appetite for the good or something like that. And there's a way in which that I, when I think of these children examples, that's still technically true. You're willing, like, food. You're willing things that are, you know, um, your own nourishment, sustainment. Selfishness is like, you know, the main sin he can put upon these kids. But it's like, realistically there's still like things in that sense like those are wholesome things he's not they're not wanting vices uh in that sense and so it's as if the will if we can just if you know if you took that for granted that the will really was some sort of appetite for the good but that basically your rationality gets skewed in this it can like you said you can go into excess it seems to make sense it's just that i think especially because uh some reform thinkers really love augustine and they want to take this to mean something like like, be, you know, because of the doctrine of original sin, it's like, you don't even want good things. It's like, it's really bad. And I've heard, and you just hear people use these metaphors, like, you're dead, you'd never want God, you're, you're, you would hate everything that's good. It's like, that's just not true. Yeah. Like, you want, you do want good things. It's just that you, you lack understanding of certain things, and you'll, ex, you'll excessively seek something good. Anyway. Yeah, you find something that's good, or you think is good, and then you want it all the time, right? Yeah. I mean, this is how drug abuse gets started. This is how sex addiction happens. Yeah. It's like you find something like, wow, that's really good. And then all of a sudden that becomes the whole thing. And it inevitably leads, like once, like if you take it far enough, it destroys you, right? There's, um, you know, I mean, that's ultimately what happens. And I think that that's kind of what Augustine's getting at. Augustine's saying, look, sex is good in the right place, right time, with the right person, to the right degree. Yeah. But you don't let it become this thing that consumes you and owns you. Right. And he actually, of course, in when he gets in book two, talks about his adolescence, he's going to talk a lot about his sex drive. Right. I mean, Augustine thinks of himself as a player in his younger years. Like <laughs> he definitely believe. I mean, like he looked at himself as a womanizer. And he this one moment when he's like, look, I'm kind of disappointed in my mom a little bit because my mom could have saved me a lot of trouble if she would have just arranged a marriage for me, because then that being married could have curbed my sexual appetite. But because she wanted me basically to succeed at this. And by the way, his mom is a Christian, right? A, who gets goes has a little bit of fame in her own right because of her son, right? Um, 
Santa uh, Monica. He says, what's that? Santa Monica. It's yeah, a, yeah, in California, yeah, yeah. Santa Monica, that's St. Monica, his, his mom. Yeah. Yeah, his mother. And he actually kind of, I was really surprised because, I mean, I know about Monica. I mean, she's famous in Christian history because Augustine is her son. And um, I was surprised to see him kind of rebuke her a little bit. He's like, he could have, she could have saved me a lot of heartache if she had just gotten me married. Because had I been married, I would not have gone out and lived this profligate lifestyle. Um, So what he's saying there is sex, right place, right time, right person, right ways. But I didn't do that. And I became excessively devoted to it. So this is like that rightly ordered affections. Because I didn't have the right order of affections, which is always you first, O Lord, and then your rightly created design falling in place. Which he also got mad at his mom for not wasn't baptizing him early, right? Because she didn't baptize him. Yeah, because she didn't baptize him. Yeah. A similar, it leads to this uh, thing, but because he wanted basically his will to be formed Mm. like Christ's will, and that didn't happen. Yeah. By the way, and Chad, we've been monopolizing here for a second, but just as a comment on that baptism thing, because he does complain about, um, about the fact that his mother didn't baptize him when he was younger and therefore deprived him of what he took to be a tool to help him against sin. So he actually believed that the sacrament had power to help him overcome sin. Yeah. But it also revealed something that was a common belief in the day, and I think we may have talked about it earlier in the past when we talked about Constantine, is he said she waited to baptize him for fear that he might later on commit sin. And so it, it just kind of, for those of you guys who who maybe tune in because you're really interested in hearing, like, why do we, why do, you know, where did it come about that people started practicing infant baptism and things of this nature? It's actually often hard to identify where church-wide practices developed, but you can often see, like, ways that they change. And it seems pretty clear that from, like, from Augustine's time back to Constantine's time, and who knows how far before that, there was this thought that you should put off baptism. You shouldn't do it early. You should put it off because or basically they would do this out of fear that they might commit some sin after baptism with that would disqualify them from salvation. Constantine was baptized like right before he died. On his deathbed. Right? Yeah. yeah. Constantine, Constantine waited for baptism until his deathbed because, especially because in his mind, he was like, look, I'm the emperor. I got to kill people and do things <laughs> that are undesirable. So I better wait to be baptized. And that dude kind of lived not in a monastery, but he kind of, cordoned off his home for his last couple of weeks of his life because he was afraid that he would like fall into some kind of sin. Wow. Well, let, yeah, let's not talk about baptism too much more, uh, although it's fascinating. Um, and definitely the tides shift after Augustine. I mean, so some people say that all philosophy is a footnote to Plato. Uh, Bernard McGinn, a famous theologian, said that all theology, at least in the West, all theology is a footnote to Augustine. I'm um, glad you said at least in the West because... The Orthodox would take severe issue. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, to that point, I I really hope that this person is listening. I don't really know if they would or whatever, but I once heard a podcast where they said that Augustine didn't have the appropriate theological education, um, and that's why he was such a bad theologian. Um, what? <laughs> Somebody and, said that? 
Yeah, yeah. They said that, um, you know, well, like Gregory of Nyssa and uh, Gregory Nazianzen and Basil, they all had a good theological education. That's why they wrote so well. Um, if I could remember exactly where this podcast was uh, or the, whatever this was, I would email them and, you know, all these awful things that I would say. Because I, I make part of what I do is make a very thorough study of what education was in this period um, to say, how does that form the various people? Augustine and Basil, uh, the East and the West had basically the same education. There are no theological schools, um, to the same degree that we have them now. There are no seminaries. There are, you might, you could go study. We think you could have gone to study maybe a little bit with origin. You may have been able to spend time with origin, but basically you would just go to where someone might have preached or might have spoken, and you could learn some things from them, which is what Augustine does. He goes to listen to Ambrose. Um, it would be almost no different uh, for for um, you know someone like for Basil to go listen to some great preacher around him. Um, but his formal education, if you want to call it that, um, you you go to see a primus magister who teaches you your letters um, and who teaches you some ba- basic uh, Roman numerals. Then you go to see a grammaticus who teaches you um, some early memorizations of some poems, um, all pagan. Um, and especially in the Latin West, you would learn the Greek poets and the Roman poets. Uh, so this would be uh, Virgil, Ovid, um, probably the playwrights, uh, Terence, Plautus. Um, and then for, for Greeks, Homer, Menander, um, Aeschylus, um, Probably not a whole lot of philosophers, by the way, because that was a separate thing. Um, and, uh, and then you would go to the rhetorician where you'd learn to write great speeches to go argue in the courthouse. This is what Augustine's parents wanted for him. They wanted him to be a lawyer. They wanted him to go stand up in uh, the forum. And when there would be a trial, uh, he could you know, defend. Um, and he becomes a rhetorician. Um, and so in his school of rhetoric, he reads Cicero, who turns him on to Hortensius, turns him on to philosophy, because Cicero was, like Tom said earlier, just a great lover of all knowledge, um, didn't think of himself in these hard line categories. Um, but that's what so that's what Augustine's education is. Um, and it is geared towards becoming a very good speaker in a law court um, and knowing the right uh, historical, or excuse me, knowing the right classical references. So he could reference Dido off the top of his head. He could reference Homer. He could reference Menander. He could reference, uh, 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 you know, these kinds of people. That is what he was trained to do. By the um, way, to, to kind of to that, uh, book two, chapter five, at the end, he's talking about his the, the education his parents procured. And he says here, at that time, everybody was full of praise for my father because he spent money on his son beyond the means of his estate when that was necessary to finance an education entailing a long journey. So so let me start off by saying this, that like, so he's saying people praise my dad because he spent more money than he could afford to get me a good education, which is funny because it's like, I like, I see that all the time nowadays, right? I mean, I, I teach at a private school. People are paying a lot of money to put their kids in our school with the hopes that they someday will, you know, get into a good college and then, you know, and so on. And not just that. I mean, I see parents who are paying to get their students 
uh, to get their kids tutors and, and to teach them music and all these different things. He goes on and he says, many citizens of far greater wealth did nothing of this kind for their children. But this same father did not care what character before you, that is God, I was developing or how chaste I was so long as I possessed a cultured tongue. Though my culture really meant a desert uncultivated by you, God. You are the one true and good Lord of your land, which is my heart. So what he's in essence saying is, my dad wanted to get me this awesome education so that I could become a lawyer, basically, um, so that I could argue well, so that I could be this great rhetor. And he says, but at the end of the day, my dad didn't care about what really mattered, which is growing Christ in me, cultivating my heart and and teaching me virtue. I learned language. I didn't learn virtue. So he's kind of like criticizing his father. Now, what I loved about this, I found actually pretty interesting. You know, I teach at a classical Christian school. And one of the things that we say is that the Greeks and the Romans, that the classical era, they were more concerned with virtue development and character development than they were about getting a good job, that that's a relatively new thing. That's a 20th century thing. Right. But it's not. Like, it's the same thing there. Like, it's the exact same thing. Like, he's criticizing his education because all his dad cared about was getting him a good job. And he's saying, what I really need was to learn the gospel and then to learn the, the things that would transform me into a servant of God, which I thought was amazing. A second thing real quick that I thought of that based on what Chad just said, I've been listening to, well, I've been doing a lot of history reading lately because I teach history. And I've been listening to a lot of history podcasts, um, put out a plug for Dan Carlin's Hardcore History and for Revolutions, Mike Duncan's Revolutions. Um, but uh, one thing that Mike Duncan on his Revolutions podcast pointed out recently is the leaders of every revolution, like in history, have always been lawyers, right? Um, and I thought about it, I thought how much, like, kind of the perception surrounding law has changed, yeah. Right. I mean, it's like we don't think necessarily of lawyers today as revolutionaries. But the reality is, you I mean, you go back to the American Revolution, the French Revolution, like the leaders of all these revolutions were lawyers. That the, that the one thing that people could kind of make a name for themselves for in the classical in the classical world, as well as the medieval world, as well as you know the modern world was law to study law and to practice law, which would open up doors for so many things. I guess it's sort of true today with poli- I mean, most politicians were lawyers at some point. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, um, yeah, so let's, I mean, I, I really, I, okay, so I really want to jump on this conversation that we're having about um, what, what education means and what a classical education means. Um, I love classical education, by the way. Whatever, what, you know, uh, there was nothing more formative in my, in the last 10 years of my life, maybe, than uh, the time I spent at Ambrose with Tom and Trevor for a year. And, um, and, and, and it actually shaped even a lot of the things that I'm doing with Augustine um, because I, I, I didn't know what classical education was, um, really, so to speak, when I uh, was growing up. I, I had a Western Civ course. We combined some history and literature. I took Latin. Um, you know, there were elements that could have been similar, uh, but we didn't talk about virtue. We didn't tra- talk about truth, goodness, and beauty. And, you know, we didn't talk about the great books. We did some that would fit, and there were some things that were similar, but we never called it classical. Um, 
and everybody and I was taught in reform school. So what was more important than anything was that you came out reformed. Um, <laughs> um, but when I started hearing them talk about classical and let's learn from the Greeks and the Romans, I thought, well, the early Christians had access to the same education. What did they think about it? Right. So if we're going to say that we're classical, um, you know, we should at least consider how early Christians who had that education that we're talking about, what did they say about it? Um, and, you know, you get a very mixed bag, a very mixed, uh, you know, Augustine. August- and one of the things that makes him so brilliant and so difficult to expound is he's willing to talk about all sides of the issue. Um, so he's like, he'll say things like, um, I hated Greek, but I know that I needed to learn some things from Greek. Um, I think they could have done it better, but I, I also kind of understand why my father wanted to do this for me. I wish that he, we could have done more scripture, but I'm so thankful that he gave me this great education. Um, you know, he's like, there's, I mean, it's very hard to say Augustine thinks this way, precisely this thing. It's always a bunch of like, well, I I kind of understand both sides of this coin here. Um, and so that is, he would not though have us fully swallow classical education as it was presented to him. And the one thing that he really felt like it missed was exactly what Tom described. He had to go to the philosophers to learn virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, could be a time where we could, you know, I think we have talked about this, but what the word philosopher meant to Augustine, what the word philosopher means to, um, Saul Kripke, um, or to, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, some, you know, modern analytic philosopher or even, or, or, I mean, like, let's, let's not only trash on the analytics, uh, to, to some, you know, continental philosopher, they don't care about virtue either. Uh, but, you know, but it's a very different philosophers were ones where you went to chasten your spirit to pursue what what, what made you what I mean. And what they would say, eudaimonia, this is sort of an, an, an uh, Aristotelian concept, but it's there in Augustine. But he thought that you pursued the good life. You pursued uh, true happiness. But he found that you could only actually he said the philosophers point you in the right direction but ultimate, his criticism of the philosophers isn't even always the way that they thought. It was that they were proud. Um, and he said, oh, the only thing, he says, the thing that you never learn from the philosophers and that you really don't learn from the rhetoricians is you don't learn why. Um, and he, he, t- he has this great letter. He writes to a young guy called Dioscorus, letter 119. I love it. And Dioscorus is going off to Athens to study with the philosophers. And Augustine says, or he asks Augustine, how can I defend my Christianity when I go uh, to these philosophers? And Augustine says, I can't, he, he, and, 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 he, and, and he said, I want some quotes from Cicero and other things that they'll know. And he said, that's not going to help you. How, how have you, you haven't learned this yet. Um, that's not the point. Um, did did your, none of your education teach you what it was for? It's because they don't know. And what it's for. Um, and only Jesus Christ can teach you to be humble. Um, and then all those other things can teach you what it is to truly be happy if you're willing to be humble as Jesus Christ was. Um, and, and then you can use those other things that they are good at and that they know, but for their proper ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he says, yeah, they get it. They get some things right, but they also get it 
extremely wrong. Um, and it's sort of beautiful and challenging. And uh, it's what makes me, you know, it's what makes me love reading him is because he's like, he's like, man, I love this stuff. There's so much that's good in it. Um, but, but it, all of it's not, um, if you don't know that, that God humbled himself to become man so that man might become God. Um, You know, I think about this a lot because there is a resurgence now of philosophy as a way of life. In fact, I'm pretty sure there's literally a conference now called like philosophy as a way of life. And they're trying to bring back this idea. And you see in business schools and stuff, people like reading Marcus Aurelius and, um, you know, stoicism is pretty popular. I saw a TED talk on stoicism. I actually like stoicism too yeah, a little good. bit. I like some, I li- like, I think there's like practical advice in there. Agreed. I'd probably be, that'd probably be my number two. If I wasn't a Christian, I'd probably go stoic. Okay. So exact. And now you just highlighted what basically the point I want to make is I'm, I've thought about uh, like uh, planning as advice to Christian philosophers, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, look, you guys, we have our own questions. We have our own stuff. You could, we went off and we just got went off the rails thinking philosophy had to be basically this one set of questions that we had to concern ourselves with because AJ Ayer did, you know. And I, I'm realizing now, yeah, there needs to be some sort of greater amalgamation even today. But it seemed like, which it's so, this is the funny part is I was thinking all this needed to happen today as if it can only happen today. When it sounds like basically Augustine was like, wanting something similar, which is like a way of life philosophy that is also Christian, like actually Mm -hmm. combining the way of life properties of Christianity in terms of like discussing how your life ought to be, but um, giving you this sort of reasonable and uh, straightforward explanation. And I know theology does some of that for sure, because there's like practical theology that's in this Mm -hmm. realm, but yeah, it's, it is frustrating that there's not this, uh, there's, I still don't feel like there's been a great, like amalgamation of both, both views. Like there's been this one holistic Christian philosophy. I mean, maybe, maybe some Catholic stuff, maybe I, I'm not sure, but I don't know all philosophers out, all Christian philosophers out there, but mm-hmm. it just seems like, um, I don't know, something that we lack, but, well, so I, uh, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. So B.B. Um, Warfield, um, a Princeton theologian from the 19th century, said that um, uh, what, what he said, Augustine's. Uh, so the Reformation is the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over his ecclesiology. So that is with the reformers. What they learned was that the most important thing that Augustine taught us was that God gives us grace. And this grace is what transforms us um, into um, Christians and into, you know, sanctifies us and brings us into um, uh, bliss with God. And, but what, what Aquinas and what the Catholics really emphasized was Augustine's doctrine of the church. So Augustine believes very strongly in the unity and the power of the church um, to deliver the sacraments and to um, be Christ in the world. It, you know, I've been thinking lately, like one of the things that I would like to bring back from Augustine for Protestants is his ecclesiology and say a, a Protestants believe in a church. Um, and so, OK, let me tie this all in. What I'm going to say is the reason you need humility and the reason that you can't just be the philosophers is because Augustine is a man of the church. 
Um, so he has to look at his mother, who has no education. He has to look at the fishermen. He has to look at the farmers. He has to look at the slaves. And he has to look at the emperor and say they're all in one church. Um, and there's all there's all something I can learn from all of them. Um, and so I have to be humble enough to see Jesus Christ in the church, in every person who makes up the church. So the reason that a way of life philosophy, those conferences would fail to me as a Christian mm-hmm. is because they're not the church. Mm-hmm. Um, because they will do the things that only appeals to their intellects, which is good, which mm-hmm. is really good. But it's yeah. not the church. But you know, but there's a failing there as well. It seems like no, there's not. No, there's not. Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> it's it seems like in a lot of churches that you know I don't can't, not can't speak for all churches, right? But <laughs> it's just like, kidding. <laughs> no, I know. But like the problem is what's what would be so cool is if and why I say like I feel like there's a hole is there's a way in which we just use highfalutin talk at church too that has no yeah. practical advice at all. It doesn't actually inform actual practice. And if it does, it will normally do it in this very legalistic blinding way. It's not doing it in a developmental way. It's not saying like to practice this habit of goodness for the sake of, you know, developing in a certain way. It's, it feels like, you get mixed bags, and I can't say for every church. There's probably someone out there's probably screaming, "No, my church does that." Maybe they do, but I'm just saying, like in from my experiences and going to the churches I have gone to, it's like, you know, there's just sort of like maybe a pep talk given in sort of generic term, and I never get this like, yeah, this real direct sort of way of life um, that you just ultimately walk in. I think people try to figure it out for themselves. <clears throat> maybe they develop one. But it's, it is, it's lacking. I have kind of two points um, that has come out of this last probably five, ten minutes of talking. The first, I want to address this issue about the church and the nature of the church. What Chad earlier described as ecclesiology, which is just the practical life of what it means to be a part of the church. Like, what does that look like? And there's so much involved in it, you know, um, things like. Uh, authority structure, who's in charge, who makes decisions, Uh, things like the sacraments, who's allowed to take communion, who's allowed to receive baptism, Um, things like, uh, uh, you know, you know, when do you meet? How do you meet? Things like the liturgy, what what is going to be the form of services, all those kinds of things. Here's the thing for me that I've found to be this unresolvable tension. And that is, how do I learn to be submissive Mm. to this community? while maintaining independence and personal responsibility. In other words, if I'm going to be a part of a community, the church, I'm going to have to live in a world where people are wrong and make mistakes. And some of those mistakes are going to be obviously like sinful bad ones. What do I mean by that? I mean, you're going to have leaders who are going to do bad things. Yeah. Um, And how do I remain submissive? in that world, if I know them to be leaders doing bad things. Um, And if they are doing bad things, how do I respond? Do I rebel? Do I try to get them removed? Do I leave? Like, what is my response? That's kind of the first thing. Secondly, how do I respond when the church has false beliefs, which 
I'm not a Catholic, which means I believe the church can have false beliefs, right? That's, that's part of the problem here. It's part of why the Reformation happened is because the Reformers said, wait a minute, the church, it's holding the false beliefs, and we have to now decide what are we going to do in it. Are we going to reform the church to, to get rid of those false beliefs, or are we going to rebel, essentially? And it's like, for me, this is a constant tension at every point in my life. Like, my government in the family union, to what degree do I submit to my parents as an adult man? You know, mm-hmm. like, that kind of thing. How, yeah. like, to what degree, how do you do it, and when do you rebel, and, and what is the nature of this rebellion, and what have you? That is a huge tension. My understanding of Augustine, and this is tough because he seems to, of course, actually believe what the church taught entirely. But my understanding is, is that he would say absolute submission. And I think holding to a principle of absolute submission to the community can be dangerous, right? Yeah. And that's where cults come from. I mean, really. That's where, I mean, dangerous cults. When I'm using the term cult here, I'm talking like Heaven's Gate, Jamestown. Like people are sitting there submitting to the ultimate degree. There's got to be kind of an independent thing. So that's the tension yeah. I get personally that I think we all have to wrestle with. Now, I can identify two extremes that I think are obviously wrong. One extreme is the total independence that we as a nation embrace. I don't like this church because the music isn't, it's too loud or the, the pastor isn't interesting anymore. So I'm going to leave. Or um, the other extreme, which would be, I'm going to submit to whatever they say. Like, well, I guess Jamestown, like what I just said, yeah. we will drink the Kool-Aid. That's the, where the terminology literally comes from. Right. But where do you, how do you define it? How do you be a part of a healthy church? And I don't just mean, not only that, but also in the broad sense. How do I define the church? I was about to say, right? like in my, that broad sense. My yeah. biggest, biggest worry is just that alone. Yeah. It's like, I, I need to submit to the church. What the heck's yeah. the church? Well, let me give you an example. Like, I have a, I have a couple of friends who, I, are they Christians? I don't know. Their theology is in, embraces many things that are distinctly unchristian. And I have these two sets of friends, and they both are kind of that way. And one set is going to this church. I'm not going to name, but it's a church that when I think of it, it's a Christian church in the sense that it identifies as Christian. Uh, but this one friend of mine is talking to this other friend of mine. He says, oh, yeah, we go to this one church. And and my other friend goes, oh, we might go there. And in my mind, I'm thinking, that's just not a Christian church. Like, And I'm not just trying to say because they're heretics, which, yeah, but it's more like they've kind of opened up the door and said, we're not going to define ourselves by anything. Anybody can believe whatever they want, essentially, and be a part of this community. In my mind, I'm like, that's just not Christian, you know. So how do you define that? Now, I had a second point that I don't want to lose that I think is related to something we read, but it's not directly related to this point. So before we switch topics, can I go to that? But I, w- I want to give you guys an opportunity to say anything else on on this one issue of the church. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, I've been – okay, so – uh, I will, uh, I guess I have, I have a lot. Well, uh, I do this with all things in my life. Um, I get into something and I get really into it. Um, so I've been painting for a while. So I've been listening to Stanley Hauerwas lectures and sermons for hours on end for the last month. Um, so I'm really thinking about him, uh, lately, but he would say, you have to stay with the church that wounds you. Um, <laughs> that, that wounds you. Yeah. And what he and what he means by that is like he said I was raised uh, Methodist and there were things that I didn't like about Methodist but it's part of who I am 
And he said, who is not, and then he also says jokingly, but who hasn't been wounded deeply in their soul by the hymns of the Wesleys? Um, <laughs> and, and so, um, and he says, and, and all that that means, like beautiful, like con- conv- convicting everything. Um, uh, but so, I mean, I think there's a degree to which uh, you should try uh, insofar as you are able to stay so so I've been going to a church that's a lot basically this church that I grew up in in a lot of senses uh, with a different name um, and I've been going to an evangelical pretty much Baptist church um, which is different I would point out from what you had been prior to like when I mean you were going to an Episcopal church right that's right when uh, we this podcast very different by the way ladies and gentlemen Baptists and Episcopalians yeah. <laughs> Um, the other thing I like that Howard Wass says is he says he comes from the Catholic side of Protestantism. Um, <laughs> and then he says, don't ask me what that means. Cause I don't know, but it sounds good. <laughs> uh, uh, but so I think, you know, I think when we think about, uh, what does it mean to submit to the church in cases of where they get things wrong and where they do things wrong. So when they get things wrong, theologically, um, you know, I, I put myself as much as I can at service to my church without trying to define for my church what it's going to be. Um, so when my leaders ask me questions, I'm now on the worship planning team. I get to help write in the language of our liturgy, um, and it makes me so happy. Uh, but at, at church on Sunday, our pastor went off script, and he said that Jesus inaugurated the New Deal. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was like... <laughs> Jesus is not FDR. Uh, Jesus is not Donald Trump. This is not a deal. Um, this is not the art of the deal. This is not a new deal. <laughs> this is the covenant. Um, and this is why your language matters. Um, and what Bart says is the role of the theologian is to help the church say things rightly. So to the extent that I believe that I have been called um, to study these things deeply, um, I want to be of service to my church where I can. But I also think it's it's something of a question of like raising children. So um, like I think you learn the rules as a child. And then if, if the only case where I think you should break from a church, this isn't like a hard and fast, like follow these steps. But it's sort of like the teleological suspension of the ethical in Kierkegaard. It's like you need to learn the rules before you're willing to break them. And it has to be heart wrenching to do so. Um, cause if, if you're doing it on a whim because your pastor says the new deal on Sunday morning, and it's not that big of a deal, uh, really, uh, but it just, it was grating on me. Um, I shouldn't, I shouldn't leave the church over that. <laughs> um, and, but if I do, then I'm subject to my whims. Um, but if I, if, if my parents have raised me to such a degree that I try as hard as I possibly can to be submissive to those in authority over me. Um, but, 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 and then breaking it, breaking it should break unity. It should break the body. Um, it should be grieving, um, to do so. And then I think it's right. And and I think that there are cases where it's right to do so. I would never tell someone to not, but it should be so heart wrenching, um, that, that, uh, you know, yeah, that it's almost unbearable, but, but there is a time for it. And it's the same, yeah. to me, it's the same with family. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is family. The church is yeah. family. And let's be, let's be clear. Jesus was a greater enemy of the family than the Republicans uh, want to believe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jesus hated the family in a lot of ways. 
Uh, you might explain yourself there because I think some people might be a little. Well, right. I, I, I when know what you mean, but. Yeah, he says, I, um, I've not come to bring peace but the sword. And what he was talking about was separating families. Um, he, yeah. says, he says, who are my father and brother um, and mother? Uh, those who do the will of my father. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in some ways he came to redefine for the Jewish people and for the society at large, like those family ties sp- uh, must submit um, yes. to uh, your commitment to your God. Yeah. Um, and, and that's yeah. for me that really comes back to that rightly ordered affections yeah. right the jewish community really and uh, and i don't say this to to you know obviously take any shots at jews or something like that right. but clearly an enormous amount of kind of their identity is tied up in their um family right yeah. i mean that's i mean one at a personal level this is true today, but even at a national level, right? I mean, the whole idea of being Jewish is you were a son of Abraham, right? And and it's like I think about some of the New Testament things, you know, where John the Baptist is like talking and he says, do not say to yourself we have Abraham for our father because God can raise up these stones, right, uh, for us children. And so, uh, you know, I don't think, one, Jesus is, of course, condemning at all the idea of being Jewish or, of, of course, prioritizing family at all. But I think, Chad, you're right. What Jesus is doing there is saying, hey, anything that we take and we prioritize and place above our love and commitment to God himself, that automatically is idolatry, and we need to reorder our affections. Yeah. Right? So I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. You know, And if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his sister, his brother, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. All that stuff is... It's all that. So, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, clarify for everybody. Just didn't want yeah. to leave him hanging with, in some ways, Jesus hated the family. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, well, and I mean, so this, I mean, I don't know. This is where I'm, again, I'm a, I mean, I, I, I don't vote and I think Christians shouldn't vote. Um, but you don't vote I, at all? No, I'm, I'm opposed to voting. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, I think that we as Christians should be a threat to the political structures. And in a sense, you know, I think that the Jewish people like are right to be sort of concerned about Christians not supporting the family as much as Jewish people do, because there is a threat to the family, to the state. Um, and that is Christianity should yeah. be threatening uh, because we will not do whatever you call us to do. Yes. Um, we will. There are things where we will say, Christian conscience will not allow us um, to do certain things. And I I wish, oh, that I wish um, that we still held that place in society where like, it's like Catholics in England in the 19th century. They didn't trust them because they knew that their allegiance was somewhere else at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, And it's it's always a dangerous thing when the church gets in bed with the state and they become this like line. There's this line that, seeming that's hard to draw. Now, it is kind of funny you say that, though, Chad, because in Augustine's day, the church and the state were one, in a sense, right? And the emperor, I mean, the emperor, I mean, Rome was Christian, and the emperor viewed himself not just as the head of the state, but as, if not the head of the church, at least the executive of the church, right? He would have at least seen himself as wielding the sword for the sake of the church's... Yeah. Yeah. 
so that's exactly right. But to, I mean, that's the failure of Constantinianism, which we haven't let go of even today, sadly. No, it's the same, <laughs> right? It's the same. Sarah Huckabee Sanders standing up. And to be fair, I was actually kind of, I mean, she didn't just quote scripture, but, you know, in the news, oh yeah, you had that um, newspaper reporter who asks her, how, how can you justify from the Bible, um, you know, this uh, thing going on at the border with children and parents being separated? She quotes Romans 13. Now, people have made it as if she's just going out there quoting Romans 13. She was asked from the Bible because the reporter obviously knew she was a professing Christian. But nonetheless, kind of to the point, there is this mindset that we have of rolling the church and the state together into one and, and as much as possible trying to make the church, the state. I myself find this to be a tension. I do vote. Um, I, I do think Christians um, should be active in varying degrees in democratic politics because it's available. And it's, I don't know, I think of civic duty as kind of a virtue in a certain sense, but at the same time, I think of it similarly, I think, as I think of the relationship with a family. Like, I think dads should be dads in their family, and I think that's a, like a duty, so to speak. Um, but if their family becomes such that it takes priority over um, Christ, then it becomes an idol, and that idol must be destroyed, in a sense. Same thing with the state. So I haven't a very clear definition of the degree to which or the way in which I think Christians should be involved in the state. I guess I would think that it'd be fine for a Christian to be uh, held to elective office in a sense, as long as he wasn't required to compromise his convictions. Yeah. Um, although I do think at times that might be very difficult for that to happen. Well, hopefully we'll read city of God and we'll talk about how, how Augustine solves this dilemma, which is a place where, his, I mean, in my life, I've departed from him um, uh-huh. on this, but he thinks that you should actually only want a Christian to be in that role. Because, um, uh, but, but yeah, we can. Uh, N.T. Wright almost says something quite similar. I, I remember hearing N.T. Wright, uh, the the theologian that we've talked about many times on the show, um, in a in a discussion, and he was addressing the issue of Christians wanting to be absent from civic responsibility. And he said, why would we want that? Why would we want like Christians and their like, why would we want that exempt from what's going on in the state? He says, shouldn't we ought to be trying to um, impact the state? I, and I don't know, I guess I'm torn on that because I do, there is a sympathy I have towards your view, Chad. I, I think we need to recognize the church as the church and not confuse it with yeah. any other institution or thing. Um and the degree to which I am involved in the state, in my mind, is only as an extension of my duty and commitment to the church, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Christian anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I mean, this is, this is what, um, this is what Hauerwas would say to that. He would say, the ch- he should say, it's not that the church is apolitical. The church is its own politics. Hmm. Um, and yeah. so, so he says, you know, some, I mean, well, he doesn't say this, this is, this is me going off my own, but like sometimes churches try to say, oh, well, we're not committed to being Democrat or Republican, which I much prefer, um, I think, uh, than saying, you know, basically, you know, I think that there are certain Protestant liberals who are basically just a pawn of the left. And I think that there are a lot of evangelical conservatives who are pawn of the right. 
Um, and, um, my family historically included in that, um, not my immediate family, but, um, I have ties in my family to, um, Jerry Falwell and stuff. Um, but, um, you know, I think, uh, so I think that we have become a pawn for those things, but they say that the church is apolitical and I want to, and, you know, and I want to say with N.T. Wright that the gospel is Jesus Christ is Lord. It is actually a very political claim in Greek. Uh, right. Kyrios is the word for also, you know, is the word that Augustus took for himself um, yeah. as the Lord of the realm. And yeah. so, Augustus, not Augustine. Augustine yeah, yeah. The That's first right. emperor of Rome. <laughs> That's right. So so when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we're saying Jesus is the Lord of all of the realms. Yeah. Um, you have that thing about, you know, a kingdom that you want to establish on earth and mm-hmm. all. So. For shizzle. Yeah. That's how Trevor was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Tom had a second point. And I yeah. Was... So I had a second point um, that now veers away from that. And that is what I loved here about the tension Augustine is feeling about Aeneas and Dido mm. is what you see there is you see in him, he still loves that stuff. Mm-hmm. He still loves it. And he sees that it's been bad. And I, I, it's like what, so the tension that I see arising here is something I've felt because I love books. I love classical literature. I love modern literature. I love books that are written by Christians. I love books that are written by non-Christians. I love books that are teaching the right life ethic in some arena and books that don't teach the right life ethic. I also love movies for the same reason. I also love music. Similarly, right? I, you know, yesterday I was with my brother and I started watching a Quentin Tarantino movie and I love it. I love Tarantino's movies. I don't know that I agree with a single thing that he believes in life. And I certainly think that if there are any messages in his movies, which some people say there are, I'm not convinced there are. Um, As far as I can tell, he, he is delighted by gross violence, right? And <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, something along those li- along those lines. That's bad, and that's what Const- or that's what Augustine is saying when he talks about Dido and um, Aeneas. He's saying, "Look, I ought not be taught to prioritize romantic love for a woman over my duty to the state. I ought not be taught." that if my lover leaves me, I should kill myself in an act of spite. I shouldn't be taught those things, which he says is what is being taught in those books. He, he refers to Homer, and he talks about the fact that the way Homer describes the gods, like when you have Zeus committing affairs, like he's having affairs, what you're teaching your children is the king of the gods has affairs. Yeah. And what that does is it, it gives you like – the comfort that, you know, maybe it's not so bad, you know? And the reality is, is like, you know, when I'm, you know, I'm watching kids grow up as a teacher and I'm, I know what they're watching because even though I go to a school that's very conservative, it seems to me that fundamentalism, this, which is hard to define, but I guess in my mind, what I'm thinking is that group of Christians that is in a sense, uh, starting in the 1950s and 60s, tried to disconnect itself from American culture, tried to basically um, 
develop a cloister, right? A yeah. monastery for themselves where they're like, we're not going to take in American culture. Mm -hmm. We're going to have our own culture. We're not going to read books and watch TV and watch movies because these things are teaching our kids bad stuff. We're going to read the Bible and we're going to read, you know, Christian guys. Um, and we, they have to get made fun of. And we look at them as like being anti-intellectual and as not being deep thinkers and as being very judgmental and, you know, all these various things. But it's like when I read Augustine, Augustine seems to be endorsing that, right? He's, he's kind of saying, look, we shouldn't be reading this stuff. And when I sit there and hang out with my kids and I listen and I, they're talking about Kendrick Lamar, um, who is a professing Christian, but also who raps about crazy stuff and yeah. seems to put forward worldview stuff that I'm like, I don't know about that. Or they talk about Tarantino or they talk about Game of Thrones, which, by the way, full confession here. I listen to all that and watch all that. Right. I, I love, wrestle with I them because I go, what's that? I said, I love Game of Thrones anyway. <laughs> the rest I, I'm of the only really pure one here. I've <laughs> not seen Game of Thrones. <laughs> so here's the thing. I'm listening to this and I'm like, I'm watching this and I go, that is deeply affecting to the moral. Like that deeply affects the moral development of the young men and women of our country yeah. and of our culture. And it affects me. And, and Augustine is simply saying, look, it does in fact, impact what you believe and what you think. And so he's saying, so why would I watch it? Why would I do it? So this is the tension that I have because I've at various times come up with reasons why it's okay perhaps to watch certain things or listen to certain things. I certainly not one of those guys who, who it's a free form. There are some things I can clearly look at and say, nobody should ever watch that. Nobody should ever listen to that. Right now there are extremes that are obvious pornography. Nobody should ever watch that. But now Having said that, what is the line and why is the line there? Well, even the culture has technically lines. Yeah, sure. The culture like, definitely does have lines. It's like, yeah. They're so extreme it's, ends. They're very extreme, of course. <laughs> but it's like, that's the thing. It's, you're, you're right. It's like we've, uh, we've given away to the culture in that sense, whereas Christianity normally should, it seem, at least have yeah. its own culture. Yeah. Which and, it defines its own. And the younger generation more so than ever. I go to a, I teach at a very conservative Christian school. My kids listen to game of, or watch game of thrones and listen to Kendrick Lamar. Like that is what they do. And it, it, like I said, it affects what they believe. So, so my question then that I don't have an answer to that I'm really wrestling with as a personal, like as a, just kind of a personal life thing is to what degree are the fundamentalists, right? And to what degree are whatever the non-fundamentalists are, whatever you call them are to what degree are they right? To what degree ought I cloister up and just kind of not, imbibe this stuff and to what degree ought i to embrace or engage at least with the culture that's where i wrestle and and i feel like augustine at least thus far has not answered that question he showed he talks about the tension he talks about yeah. loving aeneas and dido he says aeneas and dido is bad and we shouldn't as far as i can tell he implies we shouldn't read it but he doesn't just come out and say wholesale no more literature anyway yeah um, I think he would. I think he would think, at the very least, we need to find different ways to do education. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he he definitely sets off that. Um, you know, one of the great we, we've alluded to this without saying it, but one of the great works of Augustine is uh, on Christian teaching, De Doctrina Christiana, um, whereby he basically sets a kind of syllabus for. Um, some would say, or some would say, it's uh, it's um, it's his own like grammar or his own um, uh, plan for education broadly. I think it's a way that he thinks that Christian teachers, um, that is preachers, um, should te should teach and preach. I think that's really what it's about, rather than about like element what we'd call 
um, primary and secondary education. I don't think that's his intention. Um, but some people have read it that way. Um, but anyway, that, that hopefully get to that. Um, I, yeah, I don't think he has an answer as to whether or not we should read Dido or shouldn't read Dido. I think he would say, uh, well, I, I don't know that, I don't know that he would think that all Christians should be compelled to read Dido. Um, I think he, uh, what's that? Well, Virgil, I don't know that. I just, or, uh, sorry. Yes. Dido. Yes. Sorry. Virgil's the author of that book. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. like in some ways that people talk about Christian education or talk about classical education, classical education is unknown without reading Virgil um, and classical education is the best form of education. So therefore, basically everyone should read Virgil. Yeah. Um, Which we do at my school. Yeah. And I've taught Virgil um, and I've taught the Dido story uh, in in Latin uh, and in English. Um, And um, I've done it in English only. (laughs) (laughs) But but I think we always have to be ambivalent and I think we have to be aware of the concerns. I mean, to me, you you solve some of that paradox when you teach it by by reading Augustine in 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 combination with um, Virgil. Um, and saying this was an early Christian who also read this, and this was his culture, and this is why he was concerned about it. What say you? Yeah. Um, what about Tarantino and Game of Thrones? Um, <laughs> well, I've realized, like, as I've gotten older, I can't – I don't like watching violent things. Um, I just don't – I can't even enjoy it. I love watching baseball, um, and I – uh, have an idolatrous relationship to baseball. Yes, um, <laughs> and so, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to play holier than thou on that one, but I literally just don't like watching a lot of violence and I don't like movies cause they're too long. And the red wedding was so much that I haven't actually, uh, I actually haven't watched the last season and a half or something of game of Thrones. Um, I, I, I got like three or four seasons into it and have, um, slowly stopped watching it in part just because it was too long. <laughs> uh, goes on forever, but and yet uh, you watch a baseball game. Yeah, you're you're complaining about the length <laughs> of movies and TV shows going too long, and yet you watch definitely over <laughs> St. Louis Cardinals games a year. <laughs> uh, I yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I do. do. We want to talk about the pair now, or yeah, let's uh, let's finish up with the pair. Um, so, okay. what is? Um, uh, well, I guess I guess we should read. Uh, he's is it? Uh, it's on. It's in book two, four uh, nine for me. Yeah, yeah, four nine. So there are two different numbering systems. Typical numbering systems don't have a middle. What what in mind is a middle number. That's the lobe number. So I'm reading with the Latin to my left uh, in the lobe book. So book 249 or 29. Mine says, your law, Lord, surely punishes theft. And that law is so written in human hearts that not even wrongdoing can efface it. What thief willingly puts up with a thief, even if one has all he needs while the other is driven by need? I wanted to commit theft, so I did. I was not driven by any kind of lack other than the absence of righteousness um, and a distaste for it. Uh, I can already tell that I'm going to disagree uh, with this person because he translated justitia as righteousness, which makes me want to punch him. 
Um, <laughs> I was not driven by any kind of lack other than the absence of justice and a distaste for it and the fact that I was bloated with sin. For I stole what I already had in plenty and fa of far better quality. I had no desire... Um, there we are with that big word. I had no desire to enjoy what I aimed to steal. Rather, what I enjoyed was the theft and sin themselves. And then he talks about the pear tree near his vineyard laden with fruit, which had no attractive appearance or flavor, and he steals it. Um, I think yeah. that's, yeah. Yeah, I think it's an interesting example. It, for me, it's hard to relate to desiring to steal a fruit for fruit's sake. The principle is one I understand, right? I mean, it's, you know, like, for instance, when a person commits adultery, I, I don't even know how often they realize this, but oftentimes it's for the sake of, quote, forbidden fruit, right? The idea is I, I like it only because I can't have it, right? And that's certainly a psychological thing that humans experience. Um, uh, you want what you're not allowed to have. You want what you're not supposed to do. We often, I mean, I've seen for years students violate rules just because there's a rule. They don't need the thing itself. So that is a principle makes a lot of sense. It's weird to me to think I want, I'm going to steal that pair just because I want to steal a pair. Like I would think if I stole a pair, it would just be because I really needed a pair for whatever reason. Which by the <laughs> way, I, I wondered this and I'm sure some smart people have already thought of this idea, but because a pair stealing a pair does seem so like what the heck to us. Do you think he did it because he was just trying to make a parallel to Genesis? Like he chose an example like that? Like he may be embellishing even a little? Or I, I don't know. You know what actually just popped into my head? What? Which would actually contradict what I said earlier about kind of not understanding this. Yeah. I remember the first time. I, I can only think of two times in my life where I conscientiously stole something. I'm sure that I've like... Yeah. downloaded something that probably you hazy you might count as stealing right or I'm sure that I've like taken something at home that I probably shouldn't have from the refrigerator you know things like that but where I conscientiously thought I'm about to steal right now mm -hmm. there were two times the first time I was in sixth grade and I remember it like it was yesterday and I do remember I was in the store looking at some stuff and then I left and I thought I need to steal something because it's about that time. I'm a sixth grader now. I really need to just do this. I really did think that. And I, I walked in with my coat on and I walked up and all I did was grab the candy bar and I put it inside the inside pocket of my coat. And as I started walking out, the clerk said, Hey, and then I ran out the door and I ran to the back of the store, took out the candy bar, threw it on the ground and ran home. Didn't even keep it because I was so scared, but that was like a pretty transformative moment. Like that was a big moment in my life. And, like, I remember conscientiously doing it, and it wasn't because I desperately wanted a candy bar. It was because I wanted to steal, because I thought it was time for me to kind of take this next step in my life, so to speak. And I remember, like it was yesterday, it was a very scary moment, and it was very – and I wonder maybe if the pear thing might not have been a thing like that for him. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, I stole soda once as a kid, and it was definitely just – more exciting to steal soda yeah because it's stealing yeah i won't name the business but i'll just say they're rich enough anyway <laughs> the point is i don't feel actually that bad about it if i'm being honest but the point is like yeah it, it's more about the excitement of the stealing but anyway sorry to no i i mean i the only um my equivalent would be like the first time i swore and i would say actually i can remember when i learned in elementary school a song 
um, it was like a little rhyming song and I could still sing the song. It was something, 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 a duck, something, a kangaroo, something. And it was like, you know, there's all these swear words and stuff. It's just, oh. it's, it's just, it's just a way for kids to swear in a rhyming way. And I remember the rhyme and I remember the swears. Yeah. Um, and I would just walk around and say it and sing it. I did too. I had those rhymes. Um, and that's, I remember those more than a theft. I was trying to think of a theft. Um, okay. So the connection, so, but a couple of things that are different for Tom's story and what I'm describing, well, actually my story might be closer. Um, it's peer pressure, right? I mean, so Tom, Tom is sort of talking about it a little bit. He said he's a sixth grader, other kind kind of implied other people have been doing it. I should do it. Um, and so that's a big thing for Augustine. It's a community of sin and sinners. Um, that was big, actually, in my story. I just left that out. But that was definitely because I had other friends who also wanted to go do this. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's I like big- what you said just there, Chad, a community of sin, which mm-hmm. is a big, you know, I teach the Brothers Karamazov every year. Mm-hmm. That's a big Dostoevsky thing uh, in that book. We are all guilty for everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's something I hadn't given a lot of thought to until the last couple of years teaching through that book. We're so individualistic as a society. We always think of pride or responsibility as our own always. Um, and it's like when I, like I, you know, I just went through a situation where there was like a, a person in uh, ministry at my church who had to come under like some discipline had made some mistakes kind of thing. And since then, what I've come to realize is just how much the rest of us are guilty for aspects of this. You know what I mean? Like it's easy to go, Oh, it's his fault. And we all didn't do anything. But it's like, when I look at all the times where we made choices to let things pass or to not do this or to not question here, you know what I mean? Like it's like, it's like sin is a communal thing, Mm. right? Sin is a communal thing. We are, it is a part of who we are. And to a certain degree, just being human and being a part of the community of humanity is obviously implicating you in the sin of humanity, which is something that I think our contemporary individualistic society does not understand. Yeah. Well, to some degree, I think my illustration might bring this out a little bit because I was learning a song and I was learning to sing a song and it clearly has penetrated um, my mind so that I remembered it. Um, and one thing that when he talks, so to go full circle a little bit, he talks about language, right? So you learn, he talks about entering into and in a way descending into human communication. And so somehow even sin is uh, inherent in the language. Yeah. Um, and so there, there are swear words that can be used to harmful effect. Um, I I don't believe that a word in and of itself is sinful, but it can, all words can be used to harm. Um, so, so language, um, is what connects us, which binds us, which makes us a community. I always think it's funny, you know, when people say, uh, well, I want them to make Christianity their own, or I want them to say it in their own words. There's no such thing as your own words. Um, and yeah. your words are always part of the community who teaches you to use them. And is yeah. your community going to be one that uses language well or poorly? Um, and this is why it's important that Jesus Christ is the word um, and that that word is spoken and that word is preached and that that um, and that Jesus uses and preaches the language of the Psalms. Again, to come back to Augustine, 
the very words that he chooses, he wants them to be the language and the words of scripture. Um, because those are the language, that is the language and those are the words of Jesus Christ, most especially the Psalms. Um, so he sins in language, in community with these, the pair people. Um, and you can also look forward to book eight and book nine. He converts because of language. He converts because a girl calls to him and tells him to take up and read, and he reads the words of Paul. Um, and then when he has even all the way to the Ostia ascent in book nine, when he feels this like this most mystical union with God, it's in words with his mother. Um, his most intimate moment with God and God's self is in conversation with his mother um, about God. Um, and he says that is to him. Uh, that was one, both how his mother knew that she could die and depart this earth because she knew her son had become a Christian. Um, but she, but it was also, it's also the power and the way in which Augustine had, Augustine had to reform his language in itself. And that's what he learned in the church was he learned to speak as a Christian. Um, and he learned the Christian language, the community of Christian language, which is not his own. It's not original. It's not peculiar to him. Mm -hmm. uh, it is the language of the church. I love language. So just a point about stealing. Yeah. <laughs> um, he talks about how he also like wasn't in need. Do you think Augustine would have been literally okay with taking the pair if someone's in need? Uh, my, I mean, my thought would be he's trying to show you that this is a pure innate act of evil. Um, I think he would have thought it was wrong, but understandable. Mm. Um, Augustine loves a hierarchy. <laughs> yeah. I, I just wondered, I only wondered about that because I know that at least according to Eleanor Stump on Aquinas, uh, Aquinas apparently thinks that if you're in great need, uh, taking something is not theft at that point. Um, since everything actually belongs to God and it, mm. all property becomes common. And so I just basically I was actually just trying to see like sort of whether there was some sort of moral trickling back to Augustine. But yeah. Yeah, I, I, I take it in this case to just be um, part of the way that he's setting up why this is sort of pure, unadulterated evil. Right. So I know we said let's finish out with that. I just have a couple of passages I just want to re refer to quickly because there's some interesting stuff we don't need to have conversation about. Is that OK? Sure. Yeah. Before we go. So just a couple, the first, this is, as far as I can remember from all the stuff we've read, and I could be wrong on this because it's been a while since I've read anything from, you know, what we've been working through. Mm -hmm. um, in book two, three, uh, this is the first time I can recall a theologian referring to sexual union as an act only intended to procreate children. Mm. So he says, the stormy waves of my youth would have finally broken on the shore of marriage. This is him complaining that his mom didn't get him a wife. Even so, I could not have been wholly content to confine sexual union to acts intended to procreate children as your law prescribes, Lord. So I found that interesting because he seems to say there that you're sinning if you are having sex for any reason other than procreation, mm -hmm. which I find interesting. I, I actually, you know, having been born in the 70s and grown up through the 80s and 90s, I didn't realize just how pervasive that general idea was culturally, right? I mean, it's like in the 60s, you have a birth control revolution 
which was a new thing. And people were like, birth control is bad, which now I think of that as like a Catholic stance because Catholics still hold to this view. Um, but I, I don't know. Am I wrong in that, Chad? Was there anybody else that we've read that clearly says that, that you can recall or Trevor? No. There was um, – I, I, the only thing I even remember sexually was people were just – really down with being virgins like virginity yeah. was so Celib- there was a set there was something we read on celibacy i remember yeah there was celibacy was like looked up to a lot and sex just seemed really dirty in general but mm-hmm. i didn't remember yeah. jerome is a rough contemporary who would talk about sex in those terms um um i'm trying to think of tertullian deals with sex um tertullian might say something similar um but i i, I mean Aside from the fact that it's a Catholic position nowadays because of birth control, um, I, I have a lot of sympathy with it in, in a sense, um, which is to say, like, I do think we should always be aware. Like, I, I think it helps us understand where. Um, well, OK, so here, here's here's why I here's why I, 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 I like it. So. I think we get into a little bit of our own sense of our ability to control life um, and the world when we pr- when we use birth control and say things like, I'm only going to have a kid when I'm ready and when I decide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there we get like, I think one of the biggest problems that I have individually, I want control. I hate the feeling of out of control. I mean, yeah. I have anxiety of other things like that. Um but I also think there's a sense in which what a Christian believes is that you are submitting to a different person who's in control. And there's something beautiful about recognizing in a marriage, um, I'm not in control when God decides that we need to have children. Um, I'm not in control. I'm opening myself up to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I love my wife and I'm going to show my love to my wife. Um, and whenever it is time for us to have children, well, it'll happen. Um, and we won't be trying to control and trying to decide and trying to plan um, because I think we get ourselves into a lot of trouble as parents and as a society when we think, well, we can plan everything and we can fix everything out and we can determine, you know, and this is because like to me, the really vicious part of this comes um, when you start looking at when they do the the test to see if a child has Down syndrome mm-hmm. Um and you say, oh, well, we'll abort that child. It doesn't fit our plan. Yeah. Um, and I think that that this this mentality taken, let's say, I'll say it this way. This mentality taken to its extreme is that um, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not going to have a child until it is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Or even further down the road, but with like new gene editing technology, how far are we from designer babies? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a bigger fear to me. I, I, I mean, you know, I understand simple birth control methods. I'm not, I'm not trying to say I deny it altogether, but I understand the converse, and I'm afraid of the distant thing that comes yeah. um, sometimes. Well, and I have a good friend who I really respect who pointed out, and he's a Protestant, but I remember he pointed out to me some time ago, he goes, look, he says, you know, I, I don't really hold to the Catholic view per se, but the Catholics are the only ones who have a – fully worked out theology of sexuality and its purpose, mm. right? It's very teleological. Sex has a purpose. This is what, and, and he says in Protestants, just as we often do, have essentially 
bought into what the culture says and Christianized the bad parts. Right. Right. That's essentially what it is, which is the way we do tend to do so many things, right? Like movies and music. Well, we just take what movies the culture is making, movies the music the culture is giving us, and we just Christianize it. We Christianize whatever we can, but what we don't realize is is that maybe there's a lot more going on that is undermining our worldview than just the the little content bits that we don't like. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There, there were two other passages really quickly. Uh, one is. This is back in book one, and it's section 29. This is, I, don't, I don't think there's anything to comment on it, really. It's just that, again, complaining about his education, he points out that when a person learns to pronounce the word human incorrectly, and they don't, like, pronounce the H, he says he is socially censured more than if, contrary to your precepts, he were to hate a human being, his fellow man. Um, which, again, flies in the face of this idea that the classics, that the ancients were concerned with virtue formation. Yeah. Um, but also, I think, right on, because I think from a broad education standpoint, that's true. Like, education has tried to stay out of the ideology world, right? And because if you stay out of the ideological world, you have to stay out of the moral world. Now, contemporary education, public and private, is still communicating morals. But again, doing so without a fully realized philosophy of it all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, let's, let's not confuse ideology with philosophy and theology though. I hate the word ideology. Well, I hate when people, I hate ideologies. I'll say that. I, I'm not confusing it. I'm doing that on purpose. Oh, I'm, okay. saying, I'm saying that it's communicating ideologies. Ah, that's what right. I'm right. Oh, okay. Well, in a negative way. I'm not yeah. saying, I'm not trying to communicate oh, yeah, those yeah. terms. Yeah. Um, uh, and of course, the only place where I want to intersect that with philosophy mm-hmm. is that that they're communicating ideologies, right. not realizing that they're communicating ideologies because they don't understand the way philosophy works. So they just say, well, we're not going to concern ourselves because we want to avoid ideological talk, not realizing they do, in fact, communicate right. ideolo- ideology, like a pragmatic ideology or something along yeah, those I lines. See. Yeah, sorry. Let's. That's essentially what I'm saying there. Um, the last thing um, was just a little observation I thought was hilarious. This is in uh, section 22 of part one. Um, and he's talking about Aeneas and Carthage again. And so it's about halfway through the section. He says, if I put the question to them, whether the poet's story is, oh, sorry. No, let me go back a little further. Let there be no abuse of me from people who sell or buy a literary, literary education. If I put the question to them whether the poet's story is true that Aeneas once came to Carthage, the uneducated will reply that they do not know, while the educated will say it is false. (laughs) What I love about that is, and what I wrote in the margin right next to it is, there is nothing new under the sun. Like, I, I don't know how many times it's been told me, and I just accept it as wholesale, that... The educated used to accept doctrines of faith, et cetera, et cetera. And that in the 17th century, things got bad. And, and all of a sudden, you have these critics who come in and they're skeptical. Thanks to, thanks to uh, Descartes. And then ultimately, you know, you go from Descartes to Spinoza to, to, the, to the empiricists down to Hume. And finally, everybody's just like second-guessing everything. And then next thing you know, you have 
this higher criticism that is questioning whether or not the Bible was actually written by the people who said. And what I realized reading this is, no, that's always the way it's been. Yeah. The educated have always been skeptics, and the uneducated have always said they don't know. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's just what it is. You know, you go to the average human being and you say, hey, the world created in seven days, 14 and a half billion years. They would either say something that conforms to their ideology or they would say, I don't know. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And that's like it. Um, but it's like when you get to kind of this, you get the educated, the educated is going to be skeptical of of all these things. Right. Um, it also is interesting because, of course, people speak about the Greek myths and things of that nature as if everybody just believed that stuff. Right. <laughs> Which is just, you know, yeah. again, obviously not true. But yeah. All right. Well, I think that was good. We will be back next week with books three and four of the Confessions, and that will be a conversation uh, between Tom and I. And, uh, yeah, so thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.